0: Hello and welcome to Cities of Sand, a podcast which unearths the connections between urbanization and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson and I'm your host. Thanks for joining. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Anna. It's really exciting to hear about your work. Uh, Would you be able to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about where you're based um, and the kind of work you're doing at the moment?
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm based at the UCL Institute for Environmental Design and Engineering, uh, or IDE for short. Uh, We are part of the Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment at UCL. And my work mainly looks at how we adapt buildings and cities to climate change, um, with a specific focus on overheating and indoor quality. And more recently, um, I have become very interested in um, social and health inequalities associated with, this, um, with these changes as well.
0: Great. I mean, the research that you've sent through to me was, was fascinating. And again, it has this focus on urban heat and overheating. Mm. Um, I'm really interested in understanding what drew you to this area of research.
1: Um, so I guess it was a, a number of uh, things. Uh, I grew up in Greece and as you know, it's, <laughs> it's quite hot there. And um, more recently, um, you might have seen the news. Uh, um, there were many um, wildfires and very oh, yes. severe heat waves. Mm. Um, so growing up in, um, in a climate region where coping with heat uh, was so important and you know it made me realize um, how challenging this could be. Uh, from a built environment practitioner's perspective, and also the the, the very significant impacts it can have on people's well being, productivity, health. Um, so I studied architecture in Athens, and uh, at the same time, I, I, I was very interested in how you know, not not just how um, we should adapt to climate change um, in terms of you know specific strategies, um, but also how we should change as a profession as a discipline um, to to prepare ourselves for for climate change, both mitigation and adaptation. Um, So this led me to um, do a master's at UCL in environmental design and engineering uh, that was then followed by a PhD. So I was very interested in the concept of urban heat islands um, and that um, the interface between the indoor built environment and the microclimate, as well as you know, citywide phenomena such as a heat island. Um, so I I try to combine this in, into a research proposal and start a PhD with uh, Professor Mike Davis. And uh, yeah, then <laughs> this then led to a number of research projects in this area.
0: And where has this research on urban heat or urban heat islands primarily been based?
1: Um, so most of our research looks at London, um, although we have developed a, a UK-wide billing stock model of indoor environmental quality, including overheating and building energy use. Um, so we have also looked at other areas such as West Midlands um, but it's primarily based in London and uh, we have a a very close relationship with uh, the Greater London Authority Um, so we're in constant dialogue with them in terms of you know how our research could fade into their policies and um, you know whether articles could be useful for um, various stakeholders such as local authorities.
0: So, one of the reasons why I think it's really important to hear from researchers like yourself um, in the context of thinking about how we can build cities beyond sand is also understanding the limitations of the way in which we build today. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, are there specific kinds of limitations um, related to urban heat um, with regards to building with
2: concrete?
1: Um, Yeah, so I don't think that, you know, by definition, You know, a single construction material could be, you know, classified as good or problematic. I think um, it mainly has to do with how it's used. Um, So it it really boils down to good or or bad design. Um, So when it comes to concrete, I think there are two main factors um, that come to play. One is that it has it tends to have very high embodied energy and embodied carbon. So a lot of carbon emissions are produced, are emitted during this manufacturing and and production. And the second is in terms of um, operational performance, that it has, uh, it's a very thermally heavyweight material, so it has a very high thermal mass. Mm. This means that um, if it's exposed um, indoors, uh, there will be a, a time lag. It will absorb heat during the daytime and then release it later during um, the evening or nighttime. So this could have actually some some quite um, you know it could have a beneficial impact when it comes to managing overheating in some contexts, um, but it has to be combined with, say, night-time ventilation. It has to form part of a, a broader strategy. It's it's not necessarily problematic, but again, it has to, to be thought through in the context of the overall design. Um, so I guess the main issue with um, urban heat is that um, we have a large proportion of human-made materials and human-made surfaces in the urban environment. And and these don't perform very well when it comes to heat heat exposure prevention. So if we introduce more um, permeable materials, this would behave much better when it comes to um, limiting heat exposure during very warm periods of the summer and also shading and ventilation are extremely important. So creating ventilation pathways through urban design or you know, shading, <laughs> increasing the number of trees and the, 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 increasing the number of sheltered areas throughout the city that could pro- provide some relief from excess heat. Um, this, these are very important measures at the, at the urban scale. And so you've mentioned uh, particular
0: kinds of permeable materials. Would you be able to explain what those are, what they might be, and in what context would, would which materials be appropriate?
1: Yeah, so it could be as simple as, you know, areas of um, surfaces, um with soil or, or grass, etc. It, it, I mean, I'm sure there are uh, you know more advanced materials, but it doesn't need to be you know something very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be as simple as having more vegetated areas, um, and um, yeah, I think that that would help.
0: And what kinds of limitations or findings have emerged in your research in cities like London? What are we seeing with regards to concrete or? Other materials and um, urban heat or overheating.
1: So, one uh, early finding um, from our research was that um, even though you know the the heat island does have an impact on overheating indoors and cooling demand buildings, we found that actually the characteristics of an individual building uh, are more influential. Um, so, in terms of relative um, contribution. If you live in a, a well-protected, well-designed building that is able to, to cope with heat, um, uh, this is more important than the location of that building within the heat island. So I think that's quite an important finding for policy and, and building practitioners. And another finding that's kind of linked to this is, uh, and this is something that came out of our building stock modelling, by um, again different uh, basic measures perform slightly differently when it comes to um, their ability to limit overheating indoors. Um, but something that uh, comes up again and again in our research is uh, external shading tends to be quite effective in terms of reducing indoor overheating risk. And um, I was part of a paper that assessed the impacts of external shutters on overheating and associated health impacts.
0: It's really fascinating for me to understand a bit more about the intricacies of of how we build and the individual buildings and how they make such a huge difference to these quite big issues.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. You've mentioned that some of your work or a thread underpinning your work is the issue of uh, socioeconomic inequalities. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to explain a little bit more about how these have played out in your research?
1: Yeah, something that drew me to this area was um, some more earlier work we did on heat vulnerability mapping. Um, so we were trying to identify hot spots of heat risk by overlaying different um, layers of information. So we had information from our building stock models that predicted indoor overheating and energy performance of individual buildings or blocks of buildings. Um, then we had the uh, predictions of urban heat island uh, so local urban temperature, relatively high resolution, and then information from, say, censuses on uh, socio-demographic characteristics. So we're trying to identify areas where we had a lot of risk factors coinciding, because we thought this could be uh, this could be areas where, um, you know, the areas that could be prioritised um, for heat prevention measures. So I think it's um it's an area where more work could be done. And because I think we we approach it from a kind of being physics perspective, um, but I really think it's a a problem of socio technical nature, and we really need input from other disciplines as well. And I think COVID and the various lockdowns have really highlighted the importance of of these intricacies, as, as you said, because, you know, it's, it's one thing to have, you know, quite a large house, a soil design, able to cope with um, different climatic conditions of, you know, good indoor quality. And it's, it's entirely different if you're, you know, stuck in a very small flat without any, any access to any outdoor space. In an area where you perhaps cannot even open windows because it's polluted or too noisy outside, or um, you know you might be concerned about security issues, etc., so these have these are likely to have important impacts on um, people's health and, and well-being. So yeah, I think this is an area that's um, perhaps not. I think our understanding could definitely increase in this area. And more research is needed.
0: Thank you. One of the the areas that I think perhaps listeners might be interested in understanding is moving forward as we think about building our cities in potentially different ways, perhaps building less or building with fewer concrete inputs, for example, Mm -hmm. what kinds of materials or policies or concepts do you, as a researcher in this field, Mm -hmm. think we should prioritise? How should we move forward as we think about building our cities in the present and future?
1: Yeah, so I think there are many complex relationships there. Um, But I think the main tension um, is between energy and health, or in some ways between climate change mitigation and adaptation or as some people put it between human and planetary health. We focus a lot in our research is that tension um, between uh, drivers for energy efficiency in buildings. So so we need to reduce the carbon footprint of our buildings by say, increasing thermal insulation and reducing being fabric air tightness. So we end up with these envelopes uh, very well sealed from from the outdoors. but again, from, from our research, we can see that if this, these measures are not well designed, they could it end up trapping indoor pollutants um, uh, indoors or um, might lead to higher temperatures during the summer. Um, so, so thinking of these different strategies in tandem is really important, considering the year-round performance of the building and not just now, but also in the future. So uh, we have climate change projections in the UK. The UK is one of the few countries at the moment that has a very comprehensive set of climate change projections. So these could be used by, you know, the building construction industry um, in order to ensure that our buildings are designed for, not just for the current, but also for future climates. Mm. When it comes to... um, building materials specifically, um, again, I think we need to think about the life cycle of the construction material and a building. So um, I mentioned uh, the high embodied energy of of concrete earlier. So I think this is something to to be examined in the context of the life cycle of a a building. So, you know, if I install, let's say, if, if I build with concrete, is there going to be a payback of those emissions and there are some examples out there of um, materials that uh, have, for example, you can have, you know, thermal mass materials um, that tend to have low embodied carbon, such as rammed death. An example of this is the Wise the Building in the Centre for Alternative Technology in McCandless and Wales. Um, so, yeah, there there are alternatives out there great thank you so much that's great just to get a
0: sense of some of these guiding principles you know moving beyond sand or concrete and thinking about building our cities more holistically it's good to hear that some of these underlying principles
2: which would be very important uh...
0: So much for joining us today from Sydney. It's really great to have you here on this episode. Would you be able to introduce yourself to the listeners?
3: Of course. So, I'm Philip Oldfield. I'm the head of school at uh, the University of New South Wales, School of Built Environment, part of the Faculty of Arts, Design and Architecture.
0: And could you tell us broadly what is the focus of your
2: research?
3: Sure. So, my research looks at the environmental performance of buildings and cities and in particular the contribution that embodied carbon makes so embodied carbon is the emissions associated with the materials and construction of a building and city so everything from extracting those raw materials just sand iron ore bauxite to creating building components to transporting those components uh, between factories into a site and constructing and maintaining the building over its effective life. And and so my research looks at both the importance of embodied carbon, trying to understand what contribution it makes, but also looks at strategies to reduce this in, in our buildings and cities
0: it's really interesting to to hear is this concept of embodied carbon is that quite a new area or a new way of thinking about buildings and
3: their contribution to to co2 emissions i think it it's been around for around 20 years maybe even a little a little bit more but it's really gathered pace recently as we've started to measure it in in different ways so if you go back maybe 10 15 years we when we looked at the the carbon footprint of a building the general consensus was the big contributor was is the operating emissions, you know, turning the light switches on, heating, cooling buildings, ventilating them. And our general understanding was that embodied carbon only made around 20% of a building's greenhouse gas emissions. More recently, the general understanding is it's probably closer to 40%. But, but as we're measuring it more and more, we think it's probably even more, maybe 60 70%. And most research suggests now if you were to build a new building, in the UK today, by 2050, the majority of its greenhouse gas emissions will be related to its embodied carbon, related to its materials and its construction, not to its operation.
0: Would you be able to explain a little bit about what the construction and its materials?
3: Yes. Yeah, so embodied carbon... Um, basically consists of the stages of a a life cycle that are extraction and production of materials. It's the transportation of, of those materials, the fabrication of those materials, the actual construction process. That's called initial embodied carbon, and that's to get the building built in the first place. You've then got something called recurring embodied carbon. Now, recurring embodied carbon is the fact that you need to replace and maintain a building over its life. So something like a a concrete frame in a building, that's going to last you 50 years. It's going to last you 100 years. It's going to last a lifetime of a building. But a carpet is going to last maybe 10 years. A door may last 20 years. An air conditioning unit may may last 25 years. A Mm. facade may last 30 years. Those things go through churn and those things get replaced over time. And that builds up. carbon footprint of a building and so what you find is that the initial embodied carbon is big but it doesn't just end there that we're constantly adding and taking materials away from buildings and and contributing to their impact on the environment.
0: It's really interesting to think about the life cycle of, of the built environment as not something that ends when when a building is constructed but actually has this this lifespan which means that we continuously um, require materials to, to keep it at a certain state. I just wanted to ask if there were relationships that you that you feel would be interesting to note about embodied carbon and, and and concrete or sand
2: in particular.
3: Absolutely. So we know that concrete is a really enormous contributor to embodied carbon in buildings. So we know that it. Cement is responsible for something like seven to eight percent of all global anthropogenic CO2 emissions. Now, compare that, for example, to the aviation industry. The aviation industry is responsible for something like 2.5%. So cement you know, is responsible for you know maybe three times as much as a much maligned aviation industry. Materials like concrete and steel, it's very difficult to build without, you know, they're in every building. So they make a a significant contribution to embodied carbon and to the environmental footprint of any new building, really.
0: So would you say that in your research, what's coming across as the biggest sustainability issues that are facing our current urbanization models, in, in your opinion?
3: The challenge I see is this. I I think there's an urbanization paradox. So it's well articulated in the media and everywhere that we need to get down to zero. People talk about getting down to zero all the time. And we know the built environment needs to get down to zero by 2050. Okay, we know how to do that. There are ways to do that. But at the same time, we're building more than ever before. So we are building the equivalent to a new New York City every month. We're building an equivalent to every building in Japan every year. So this is where I think there's a paradox. We, we need to get down to zero at the same time as building more than ever before. This, this just doesn't work for me. I think we need to really question how much we're building. And I can, I can give an example. So the recent IPCC report talks about a carbon budget what we've got left before we hit certain levels of warming. And it says we've got 500 gigatons of greenhouse gases left if we want a 50% chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. But we also know between now and 2060, we're expected to build something like 230 billion square meters of new construction. Now, if we take a pretty conservative value of embodied carbon of 800 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per meter squared. So, per meter of new development, we're going to say 0.8 tons. It's pretty conservative. That would mean new construction would be responsible by 2060 for 184 gigatons of carbon. And that's 37% of all emissions, every single emission we're technically allowed if we don't exceed. 1.5 1.5 degrees of warming so that that emphasizes this idea of a paradox that, that you know it's very very challenging for us to build so much whilst also reducing ourselves down to zero now that's not a, a kind of an argument against new construction you know there are very few things we can do that are as beneficial for society as building new houses, building new libraries, building new hospitals. Mm. But we've got to ask, you know, do we have to build new casinos? Do we have to knock down a a 20-year-old office building and build a slightly more modern office building? We have to be much more careful and much more critical and self-reflective about when we build and how we build.
0: And that leads me quite well to the next question, which engages in a bit more uh, detail with this specificity of your research. So in this context what do you, opportunities do you think tall buildings offer us to live more sustainably and particularly thinking about here reducing our reliance on on sand and concrete.
3: So um the first thing i would say about tall buildings now this this might seem slightly controversial coming from someone who wrote a book called the sustainable tall building but um Tall buildings are not very sustainable, so they typically use more concrete and more steel than low-rise buildings. Now, why do they do that? Well, because they're resisting greater loads. They're resisting greater lateral loads. Wind pushes on buildings, and you need more structural materials, which typically is concrete and steel, to support the building, to reduce the building swaying. Um, And that means there is robust evidence that tall buildings have a higher embodied carbon. From my perspective, the sustainability benefit of of building tall is not so much at the building level, it's at the urban level. Mm. So if you look at the City of London, for example, um, the city cluster, you've got 12 towers there, some complete, some under construction. That will generate a million square meters of floor space. In that million square meters of floor space, you've typically got something like 75,000 people working. Maybe not at the moment because a lot of people are working at home. But if things return to a kind of pre-COVID state, you've got 75,000 people working there. Those 12 towers, million square meters are serviced by 149 car parking spaces because the density and intensity of that development is much better serviced by uh, mass rapid transit. So most people get a tube. You can compare that to low-rise development like the Apple headquarters in San Francisco. That's a, a high-tech building with every technology whistle and bell you could imagine. It's got 11,000 car parking spaces, so 14,000 occupants. So from my perspective, high-density can foster more sustainable lifestyles. But when it comes to reducing concrete, there's a kind of indirect benefit there. So... There is some evidence that higher densities and walkable urbanism means more people get mass rapid transit, so they don't drive, and we need fewer roads. Fewer roads mean less asphalt and concrete. Mm. Our infrastructure requirements to service walkable, high-density urbanism is less than, say, to service sprawling suburban suburbs. So, Do you need tall buildings to achieve that? Probably not. Um, But I'm also interested in other ways to reduce concrete in tall buildings through alternative materials, for example, and in particular, tall timber. And Mm. and with timber emerging as an alternative material for multi-story buildings.
0: This is something that I've actually seen gather momentum in the news and and public discourse about the use of timber. Where has that come from and what's driving that interest in timber in particular?
3: I think a few things are driving an interest in, in timber. We've been limited to building things out of concrete and steel for so long that actually there's a bit of excitement about a third material uh, to give us more opportunities. I think there's a very clear sustainability argument. So we did some research where we looked at a 13-story building in Sydney and we looked at the standard building and then we looked at designing it with an alternative concrete structure. So using a post-tension concrete instead of flat slab and using a the, the kind of thinner post-tension concrete saved 8% of the building's embodied carbon. That was great. But what we also showed, okay, we we built the building or designed the building out of timber. So using uh, glue laminated timber with some concrete where it was necessary. Now that saved 26% of the embodied carbon. Uh, And that's quite significant. So that shows the the very real environmental benefits of of timber. I think the other reason that timber has taken off is um, it allows for tangible benefits to the to the actual construction of buildings, so things like prefabrication, it can be quicker, it can be more effective. Um, there was a building, International House, uh, five six-story uh, timber office, build, office building built in in Sydney recently, and it was basically built like a, a Meccano kit. You know, there was no wet pouring of concrete on site, things were simply screwed together and drilled together with very, a very minimal team, mm-hmm. with uh, very minimal um, tools and equipment needed, a, a silent construction or, or relatively silent construction. So there's many benefits outside the environmental as well. But we, we, we've we shown that timber can play a very positive role in the decarbonisation of our cities. So. Trees store CO2 through photosynthesis and that's what we call sequestered carbon. Now that can be a benefit to buildings. We can count that as a carbon benefit to buildings, which helps give them a a lower um, embodied carbon. But where we've got to be aware of with timber is their end of life. So if you think about concrete, concrete is very energy and carbon intensive to make at the beginning of its life. Timber is very carbon intensive at the end of its life because when you, if you build a building out of timber and then you, at the end of its life, you either burn that timber or you put it in a landfill, it releases methane, which is incredibly bad for the environment, incredibly bad for the ozone. So, what we really need to do is look at reducing concrete at the beginning of a building's life but at the same time making sure any timber we use is lasts as long as possible that we don't just throw it to landfill we recycle timber we use a circular economy we extend timber buildings lives as much as possible
0: and how possible is that how how what kind of longevity does timber have
3: i mean there's There's timber buildings in in Japan that have been around for hundreds of years, um, Mm. really. But it it comes down to how we build. Um, We we can't be gluing things together. We need to be designing for disassembly. Uh, We need to be designing for deconstruction. Mm. Historically, we focused on when we design buildings and build them, We really think about day one. You know, we think about when the building opens, passing the keys open, when the occupant kind of goes into the building. It's very challenging to think about a building as having a life of 50 or 100 years. What what will happen to that building in 2120? How will it be recycled? How will it be uh, disassembled? That's very challenging because there's a huge amount of uncertainties around what lifestyles and economies will be like in 50 or 100 years. But we still have to try because we're demolishing buildings now which are 20, 30 years old, and that's causing a huge environmental footprint. And and so every building we make is an investment of carbon, it's an investment of labour, it's an investment of energy, and we need to maintain that investment for as long as possible.
0: I think that's a, a really great word as well to capture the stakes this is an investment and it comes with costs and opportunities so i think it's quite a big shift in our way of of thinking i mean i i'm an urban studies kind of scholar but not necessarily thinking um in depth with with building and design but to me this seems such an integral kind of way of of planning is actually planning for the deconstruction or thinking about the life cycles more broadly so it's really interesting to hear you explain that. I wanted to ask another question about um, something that I've seen in your research which I found really interesting about the opportunities that tall buildings actually offer uh, for living more socially engaged lives. I think sometimes tall buildings can get a bad name as potentially living quite anonymous lives. You can get a lift and go enter your apartment and never actually um, speak to your neighbour. I wonder what kind of research you've done on this and whether or not
3: that attitude is shifting. I think that attitude is shifting, but there is, you know, there's a strong body of research that does suggest that tall buildings are not an optimal housing type for all people, in particular families with children, because tall buildings lack that, the social communal play spaces that some other housing types have but it is quite a it's quite a nuanced discussion and predominantly because more and more people are choosing to live in apartments with families I live in an apartment with my family the reason I do so is because I want to be close to where I work because I don't want to spend all my time commuting and you know living the suburban lifestyle is is just fundamentally not possible if I want to be at work within a reasonable time and I want to get home and see my kids and have a family life. Mm. So there's there's a degree of compromise. There and we're finding more and more families are doing that. There are social benefits to that as well. So if you're living in a, an apartment near a city, you're closer to the, the social infrastructure the city provides. Libraries, museums, children might be able to walk to school rather than, say, being driven or or catch a bus. And certainly in Australia, you know, we know more families are living in apartments than ever before, and so we need to make them better. And what I'm interested in and what some of my research is interested in is how we can take those social communal experiences that the suburbs benefit from them and place them at height. One of the buildings we've studied is called the Pinnacle at Duxton. It's in Singapore. It's eight 50-storey towers um, with 3,000 apartments, and they're connected by sky bridges, by gardens, at the 50th storey and the 26th storey. And those gardens accommodate a children's play area, a gym for the elderly, a community centre, a huge amount of social infrastructure at height in buildings, meaning nobody's ever more than, say, 10 stories away from a, a green open space. In fact, the building, despite providing 3,000 apartments, actually provides 100% green space compared to the site area. So it's as if there was no building there at all in some ways. We did a, some research there. We spoke to occupants, we spoke to residents. We found the gardens were, were used all the time. We found a concern about the management of those spaces. So there was a contested ownership of those spaces. That the, the building management were very wary about residents using those spaces because they were at height. They were worried that people would throw things off the building or, or concerned about safety or overly concerned about safety. So residents couldn't eat in those spaces, for example. But the residents, we also found, really enjoyed those spaces because they were a piece of lush greenery in, the, in an otherwise dense city they provide a degree of escapism. We spoke to to teenagers who'd come down from their apartment to sit in the gardens on the 26th floor to do their homework, for example. So it's a very challenging area and if we are going to increase the density of our cities and more um, diverse demographics are going to live in tall buildings, we are going to have to change the way they're designed and operated to accommodate, I think in particular, families with children. Mm.
0: So my final question was about prefabrication, and I don't know whether or not this is something that you want to answer. Um, but I think it's something that you have looked at, um, and I was just wondering if you, if you could tell us a little bit about what do you think prefabrication homes offer us to live more sustainably, and here again I'm thinking about reducing our reliance on sand and concrete.
3: So we know the construction and built environment industry is material-intensive, and it's wasteful as well. We have a very linear process. We build, we occupy, we demolish, we build again, and we want to move to a more circular economy. For example, in Australia, I think it's 20 million tonnes of construction and demolition waste is produced each year, of which 7.1 million goes to landfill. And there's actually more construction and demolition waste in Australia than municipal waste. So it's a construction, it's a construction and deconstruction of our buildings that's contributing more waste than you know banana skins and yogurt pots and you know people's day-to-day waste. What prefabrication can do is it can limit waste in in both construction and deconstruction. So by undertaking as much construction as possible in a controlled environment i.e. a factory wastage can be limited and it's also safer it's it's easier for people to, to build in that way and that means when when building components get to site they can be easily fixed together it also allows us to think about that design for disassembly that design for deconstruction if we build things in prefabricated parts In component parts rather than pouring them on a site, it means taking them apart might be easier. So a a prefabricated timber building lends itself to be deconstructed at the end of its life. Whereas a a multi-story concrete building, what are you going to do with a concrete frame? Gonna get a, a big um, you know, you're gonna smash it into lots of different pieces and then you're gonna crush it and put it under a road. You're gonna downcycle that concrete frame. Whereas prefabricated timber, you could hopefully, you know, pull that apart and use it elsewhere. Now we don't have a very good record of that. Most of the experimental buildings that have been prefabricated, we've not recycled them. That doesn't mean we can't. It means for all manner of reasons it's not worked. Technical reasons, social reasons, the building being iconic. I still do think it is a very valuable option for us to have mm. in our quest to, to tackle greenhouse gas emissions from the built environment.
2: Yeah, thank you
0: so much for your time and sharing such great answers so clearly, so concisely and eloquently. It was really nice to listen to. <laughs> I'm really pleased to be able to invite Kieran Perura to host the next section of the podcast, as well as episode five. Kieran is at the forefront of thinking not only about the sand challenge, but also asking us to think more critically about the kinds of solutions which are already in motion across the world. And for that reason, it's fantastic to have you here. So I welcome you to take the floor.
2: So, Alia, thank you so much for joining us and for making time to be with us. We really appreciate your um, time and exp- sharing your expertise with us. The first question I have for you is, as a climate conscious architect, could you help us understand what uh, alternatives there are to concrete construction?
4: Yes, hello, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm um, an architect and uh, I I'm not, I'm not building that much because I teach as well and I um, I am interested in uh, in concrete alternatives um, uh, because I really um, I realized not that long ago, maybe a little bit more than 10 years ago, that uh, uh, concrete was the only way I knew how to build with. And so uh, when I really realized that, I and I realized all the problems that were linked to uh, concrete production and overuse of, the, of this material, um, I started to... Um, um, look for alternatives. And um, there are many alternatives, but um, the idea is not to um, um, think that the world is uh, black and uh, white and there is this bad concrete and uh, the rest of, uh, of other great alternatives. I think that uh, concrete uh, should be used, um, but in a much, much, much smaller quantity where it's really uh, needed and why it's interesting to have it. I was quite intrigued by that. Could you help us understand how that works? Yes, of course. So, um, Earth is really uh, one of the oldest material used by uh, humankind on this planet. So, if you go very, very, very far in the first uh, uh, houses that uh, humanity done, Earth was al- always used. Earth is really available; it's there; it's under our uh, feet, and Earth can be implemented in very different ways. So, you have ways that is. Where earth feels something else that is structural, for example, um, a wood or um, something else. But you can do things that are structural with uh, earth. For example, rammed earth. That is a very very antique technique. You have uh, I don't know the Alhambra of Sevilla that uh, has that is still here, and uh, all the walls of the Alhambra are in rammed earth. You have uh, uh, buildings of 300 families in China in Fujian that are called the Tulu. Some of them were started in the 12th centuries with a, b- a base in um, uh, in um, stone and the rest in rammed earth. So rammed earth is compacted earth into formworks. So you have uh, so from a very long time, uh, humankind were able to imagine that formworks could be done in wood, and we could put earth in those formworks and uh, compact this earth. So we can really um, say that um, uh, earth is a material from really a very, very, um, uh, like one of the oldest material that is completely rediscovered.
2: That's really interesting. I know that France is doing some really interesting work and also has a new law about new public buildings, right? Could Could you tell us a bit more
4: about that? Yes, yes. So uh, France had, first of all, this label created uh, maybe 20 years ago. At the beginning, it wasn't a label, and then it became a label called HQE, Haute Qualité Environnementale, that means High um, Environmental Quality. But um, HQE, as maybe uh, all the other labels in Europe, even the one in the United States called LEED, or as Briam in England, or Minergie in Switzerland, or Passive House in Austria, were always focused on energy, um, and the we really improved our buildings in, uh, in when we think about next to insulation. But uh, twenty years ago, if you were uh, doing a building completely in concrete and insulating it with uh, polystyrene, I don't know how you call that, you know, this material. And uh, you could get these labels because what was important is that your building would consume really little energy. But what you would use, what you would have as gray, um energy uh, while the building was uh, built, wasn't count, okay? So maybe you could do like very uh, low-consuming uh, uh, building, but we weren't counting all the CO2 that was already and all the resource that was consumed in the moment you were building the building, okay? Now, what's changing is that those label, and especially in France, this new law called RE-2020, which is Reglementation Energetique 2020, that should have started two years ago, but will start (laughs) in uh, next January is really um, integrating um, CO2. So, uh, and integrating CO2 means that we are now interested not only in the fact that our building are not uh, consuming, but how they are done with which kind of material, where do they come from? uh, What stress was done on the resource and what is their um, what we call LCA, life cycle assessment. Before life cycle assessment wasn't an issue. And when you look at life cycle assessment of the materials, then you realize that all the materials are completely different. And that uh, uh, bio-based material have a much better life cycle assessment. Uh, And so uh, now this uh, new regulation um will um push uh um, the um, uh, the the new buildings to use more uh, um, of those materials so not only to be well done in in the energy uh, uh, point of view but has where you have a real um thinking on 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 how you will make them okay and this will really push more uh, um for example, more uh, uh, wood buildings. For example, in France today, uh, for the new constructions, uh, the uh, the parts of the building that are in wood are in between uh, are six or 7%. Uh, a few years ago, it was uh, only 3% of, of the new buildings. Uh, it will really push as well, you know, um, a very renewable material as straw or hemp in France, is a big producer of hemp, and hemp is an incredible material that you cannot use structurally, but you can can use it to fill. And it will as well push other industries to bloom For example, as uh, all the materials that come from recycling, for example, there is this insulation in France that is done out of jeans, all those jeans that we use and that we just throw. For example, you have uh, a new company that is developing uh, insulation out of um, brass, which is really incredible because it it, uh, grows very quickly. And it will start, for example, from September, sorry, from January, All the new houses, it starts with houses that they ask a permit for construction, will have to follow this recommendation. And it will go, and I think from next summer, it will be all the um, public buildings. I think it will start with schools. So maybe in two years, more or less, all the new buildings will have to follow this which is quite um, a revolution, I would say, in Europe. Yeah. So, so France will be maybe the first country to test all this. But I, I have to be really honest and say that there is a the problem is that this regulation didn't really anticipate the fact that wood would be so much under stress mm-hmm. as it is right now. So there is, there is really this problem now to deal with. Because if you have a recommendation telling you to push some materials and those materials are not available because they are under stress, it's a problem too. It's a problem for wood. And so, so, so there is a big thing to be done by the government to, in order to have more companies that are able to provide wood to the construction sector. Mm. I think every time
2: we uh, try to seek a solution where one size fits all, or you know, a silver bullet that will that can be applied across uh, contexts, I, I think we create new problems, right? Of course.
4: For example. In India, uh, Kiran would say that much better than me. uh, uh, You have this place in Oroville where they experiment with earth earth, uh, compressed earth blocks for uh, 30 years, even 40 years now. And uh, and in Oroville, you have monsoons. So when you have monsoons, you you cannot uh, use earth, uh, even if it's really, really protected uh, without having a little cement in it. It makes it more resistant to this um, climate. So um, in every country, it's a bit different. But the interesting thing is that uh, it's a suitable uh, material for really uh, almost the whole planet, except uh, maybe for the poles, but um, almost everywhere.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. That makes a lot of sense. That sounds um, really fascinating. And um, so so what are your plans then for the next five years, Nadia, if I may ask?
4: So um, now I'm really in a new um, uh, uh, period of my life. I, I was living in Paris for many years and my office, my architecture office, even though I always built in a very small scale. Um, so I'm, I moved to Switzerland um, and I started to teach in a different um um uh, universities those alternatives to concrete um and um and so my my life will be maybe less um, building and more teaching and more researching so um, even though uh, i'm not really a researcher maybe, uh, i'm tr- i'm trying to become like an independent researcher because uh, I, it really makes more sense in my in my career now uh, and I would like to keep on building, not that much, but um, with the techniques that make sense for me. So um, that's why I shifted to to teaching. First of all, because I realized that I wasn't teach, I wasn't taught any of those, and I really think it has to be taught. So it's really with great pleasure that I I'm I'm starting those classes on those material, and and I'm doing as well. Uh, hands on. It means that <clears throat> uh, students are not only. Um, I would like ha- I would like students not to have like theoretical uh, knowledge of this, but at least little like maybe workshops where we could have hands on them um, um, on on earth or on straw. So, for example, in next January, I have I will organize a workshop with a, an architect who specializes in um, in earth in uh, straw construction. So, um, so I would like this in my, in my let's say, uh, teaching part of my activity. And on the other side, keep on doing few buildings or few um, refurbishments, uh, but with always um, a, a big attention on uh, the materials that are used.
2: Fantastic so thank you uh, very
4: much
2: once again i think on behalf of kate and myself thank you very much for your time and for sharing your expertise with us we really appreciate it thank you thank you very much
4: and kate i'm really looking forward to listen to the other podcast you've organized oh great thank you